0: Oftentimes, we think of communication as language, but this is just so much more than that. It's the language as a tool to build and maintain that relationship. So I guess that would be my way to define that.
1: All right, this week, I am so excited. The, what the world might term, nerd side of me is about to come out. (laughs) I am a silent should have been academic, maybe not so silent, definitely somebody who is a lover of words and a lover and keen, researcher is probably the wrong word, or researcher of the interrelationships between language, culture, itself, the, the brain, and how we communicate, as anybody who's listened to this podcast before will know. And this week, I get to talk to a real-life forensic linguist. Valentina, welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here.
0: Thank you, Christine. Happy to be on your podcast.
1: So I said forensic linguist. I know it's sociolinguistics that is your 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 field of study, but one of the things that did get me excited and attracted me to you when we started sharing on LinkedIn was seeing these words forensic linguist, because one of my first dream jobs as a child was to be a forensic detective. So for listeners and those who've never come across this term before, what is uh, being a forensic linguist and and what is the study of sociolinguistics?
0: Right. So forensic linguistics is basically in applied um, linguistics or applied sociolinguistics, and it is applied to the legal realm. Right. So it is applied to various um, civil and criminal cases anywhere where language is evidence, right? So it's a scientific study and analysis of that linguistic evidence, be it oral spoken, right, or written. Um, It could be multimodal to the various cases in court.
1: Wow. So... What springs to mind right now is the Johnny Depp case that happened a couple of years ago with Amber Heard. I don't know if you came across that or if you paid attention to much of it, but there was a lot of language used during that. So would that be where you'd be listening to that and hearing behind the language that's used and analyzing it forensically to say, well, they use these words, but this Mm. is probably what it meant. Is that
0: correct understanding? could be one of the cases uh, Mm -hmm. where forensic linguistics could be useful, um, especially any time there is a suspicion that somebody might be lying or how honest their apology is. If this is a case of an apology, are they really uh, sorry (laughs) (laughs) saying it? Are they contradicting themselves or maybe another witness? Um, And that would be just one of the one of the possible applications
1: this might not be a question you were expecting but can you tell me without obviously breaching any confidentiality confidentiality or anything but one of the most interesting or surprising or unusual experiences you've had in this area
0: um, unusual and surprising
1: or I'm given a couple of adjectives so you can choose whatever <laughs> one you like
0: sure. or a different or. one Sure. So I think the romantic side of us that ever wanted to be a detective (laughs) watches movies that are like that, we would expect that process to be a little more maybe linear and straightforward. And it's not. And then in my case, I guess what surprised me a little bit, um, even though it shouldn't have, um, is just some how, how strong some of the language and some of the cases might be behind the scenes. Um, so it's not for pain hearted. Some of the cases that we have to work on involve murder or um, um I'm gonna be switching to Spanish from time to time. That's great. Um, Good looking for the right word. (laughs) Um, Oh, rape! Unfortunately, obviously, there's all kinds of um, drug-related and arms-related violence as well. And so, I guess when you're playing a detective, right, or trying to do your job linguistically, um, obviously, you will be faced with very maybe detailed and um R-rated, <laughs> so to speak, R-rated uh circumstances and contexts. Um and so yeah, some people would sometimes need um psychological attention <laughs> uh or some way to deal with that violence that they read about, right? We don't witness it obviously there are w- video recordings or audio recordings, that's a different um type of experience as uh, as opposed to when you read it in a transcript from a, uh, an interrogation, for example. Um, so in a way, that's probably my most um, surprising element, even though it kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, but interestingly enough, forensic linguistics... Uh, ranges across all kinds of cases and a lot of those cases you might even call boring because they are paperwork cases right they're contracts right so the language of contracts how is certain phrasing within the contract is being understood Mm -hmm. and sometimes a single word can make a million dollar difference for some companies right and so I've had to deal with some of those cases as well
1: Wow, I'd say the language, if you missed that million dollar word, is uh, flagrant
0: (laughs) as well. Yeah,
1: it it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Particularly from the, the mindset and the psychological perspective that. Even though we might choose a particular field. Mentally, emotionally and physically, we need to be ready for it. And what somebody may have lived in their childhood that they thought they had put to bed could be triggered by reading one of these scripts or seeing one of the videos or hearing one of the audios, resulting in them needing to decompress and, and get some help. Wow. Well, OK. On the legal side of it, yeah, I, I remember when I was 15, doing my work experience at school and one of the other jobs then later in life was wanting to become a lawyer when they sent me off to the courts. And I, showed, I, I had to learn all this paperwork I'd have to do. I came back at the end of two weeks and said, OK, no, <laughs> not that one for me yeah. so what took you into the field of sociolinguistics
0: right and so um I do identify more as a sociolinguist rather than a forensic linguistic uh forensic linguist mm-hmm. um
1: did we define the difference between them I'm not sure
0: we have not so okay so <laughs> maybe
1: just for people who are listening what's what is the difference
0: Sure. So when I define forensic linguistics, for example, I said that this is applied sociolinguistics. And Mm -hmm. so sociolinguistics is really a backbone for this and some other areas where you can go. And so sociolinguistics is the study of language at the intersection of culture and society. Uh, And this is how we change or adapt our way of speaking based on context. And that context can be defined in many different ways. Right. It could be geography. It could be within the same country. If you move places, um, you might hear people speak differently within the same, um, even within the same town. Right. Whether you are at home or you're at work um, or you're at the market. Um, you will definitely hear other people speak differently and you will adapt your way of speaking to that context as well. So sociolinguistics is this uh, scientific approach to studying how we vary our language um, across multiple social, contextual and cultural factors, and also time being uh, another one. So as we age, for example, how our way of speaking changes or historically speaking, how language has changed historically. Um just across generations in um, yeah
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and so you study Spanish specifically. I know you've you've written some papers in Russian as well. What are your key areas of interest and research?
0: Mm-hmm. My main specialty is Spanish. I Hispanic sociolinguist. Um I have also done um as, as part of my doctoral degree, I've done general linguistics, which focuses on English and other languages as well. So yes, I have a paper comparing uh, Spanish with Russian, for example. Um, I have worked on some English uh, cases, especially in forensic linguistics, it's mostly been English or English as a second or third foreign language, et cetera. Um, But mostly English and Spanish, Spanish being the main focus. Okay.
1: Oh, I didn't see any of the papers on English as a second or third language. So I'd be fascinated to read them for the next time you come back. A question that came up while you were speaking there was what's pertinent right now or what's really important right now in your field as the world has, is changing and becoming more globalized
0: Mm-hmm. So variation is really at the heart of sociolinguistics, Um, language variation, how language varies. And we know that language varies uh, for multiple reasons. Um, So there is a natural just evolution of language as time goes by, but then there are other forces, there are political, social forces, Um, any big reforms happening in the world, um, you know, historically any invasions, right? So why is English so full of French words, right? (laughs) So thinking back centuries, right? Uh, And that explains a lot. And so um, I think the world being so globalized today, there are pretty much no boundaries anymore. This is a new way of living, and this is a new way of influencing each other in influencing language. Uh, You obviously know that Today, more people speak English who are non-native speakers, right? Um, and so how does that influence the language? How does that influence all of the cultures too? Because behind the language also, obviously, we have a culture. So what does it mean for somebody coming, and let's just use an old Dichotomous, collectivist, individualist divide between cultures. Obviously, this is a lot more complex. But what does it mean for somebody from collectivist cultures now adopt English as their lingua franca for work, you know, and maybe for other areas of their life, maybe entertainment? So it's not just you know a linguistic shift and linguistic variation. Right now, we have this all confluence of cultures leaning toward this individualistic background uh, in a way of looking at things and pronouncing things and phrasing um and and I see this a lot in Mexico Mexico and a lot of Latin America traditionally have been conceived as these collectivist cultures as well as my own um Russian Ukrainian culture and I I, I love that <laughs> I, I identify a lot with my um, Mexican, Um, colleagues and friends and and family here in Mexico because of that uh, similarity. But then things are just changing. And I find Mexico, especially Mexico City, like this metropolitan urban center being a lot more like the U.S. nowadays um, in in their ways of having friendships and leading collegial relationships, um, their perception of the productivity, for example, and many other things um, relevant in the professional world. And I probably strayed away from <laughs> your question with this comment. Um, so help me steer me back. <laughs> uh,
1: no, no, I, I, you're going to have to steer me back. Maybe what did I ask? I asked you because I have another question in my head. Now you've gotten such a brilliant direction with talking about the collectivist cultures and The westernization in some way of them because of the influence of language and impact of language. Um, I asked what your main areas of research were, I think. And then after that, I don't know.
0: What's the main, I guess, what's the main. Oh, what's
1: pertinent. Yes. What's most important. Yes, that's what it was.
0: Right. So I would say, yeah, all of the social changes happening Mm. that are dynamic, you know, and you kind of have to be very on top of what's going on today. In politics, in you know, the social movements, uh, what's going on in the world, right, to be able to track and analyze what's happening with the language as a reflection of that, because we know that language obviously reflects uh, what's going on in the world, and to some point, it also um, was the word Brave eyes? I think I'm mixing it in Spanish here. What's the word in um, Spanish? We
1: can work. Work it out because I'm learning Spanish at the moment, (laughs) of course, because I'm based in Andalusia now. And uh, so for me, like languaging and that shift between both languages, I think is something that I I believe, I don't know what you think, will become much more natural as the world globalises more, that we're in the middle of conversations. And instead of forcing people to try to stay in English and think in English, it'll just be natural to say there's the word in my language. Let's figure it out together.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
1: let's go down that 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 tangent road, unless you want to go back to, to that word you were thinking of.
0: I, I think I think it is actually English. Rayfies, uh, or maybe not. <laughs> <But> <laughs> is it Russian?
1: Yeah, go, go on. Sorry. The, the
0: idea is that language, at the same time, reflects social realities, but also perpetuates them. Maybe that's okay. another synonym. Um, but yeah. I think we can leave that there.
1: (laughs) Well, it's important what you're saying there, the impact and influence of language that I made a note on my document before we spoke. Often people are ignorant to and have been over the past whatever number of years. It's because of this massive change in mobility now and, and globalization that language is becoming so much more important and an awareness of, oh, Culture matters, first of all, though a lot of people still don't see that it does. And not only does culture matter, but language is a massive part of culture and culture hugely influences how we speak and how we communicate. Oh, there's so many things coming up for me now. I was reading this week and last week, one about the negative impact of studying in English on students of other languages and their capacity in their subjects and the other was last night about afghanistan and the taliban banning anything anglophone related anything related to english in any way because they perceived their culture to be as being too influenced by it i mean i think this has done france in many places as well and it's not the only country in the world that has blocked the influence even china of English words, you're not. Newspapers were banned in China from using anglicized words in their text. They had to find a, a comparison in, in Chinese or in Mandarin. So let's see where do we go? Mm. Okay, let's go with education. Given that you're an academic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the studies I read was that in Sweden, they they did a study with university students studying a course online video instruction without instructors with video instruction, one in Swedish, one in English, and the dropout rates. And so the dropout rates were higher for those studying in English. And the capacity for the subject was lower for those studying in English. And then this week, there was research published from bilingual schools in Madrid, where an area I know from one of your studies, saying that it's being found now that subjects being taught in English, students are less capable of completing and less capable and less knowledgeable of the subject when they've learned it through English. So this whole idea of the CLIL, the the content content language integrated learning that they're doing. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Right. So I have two thoughts and one having to do with the emotional connection and the barriers that that can cause cause with identifying with the language that's not yours and the culture that's not yours. And the other one is just um, effective teaching techniques, which I think is also a whole (laughs) whole new um, potential, right, to still discover and still invest in. How do you teach effectively? Because, I mean, this is the reality of things that there is an emotional connection to our language. Our mother tongue is part of it, you know, how we relate to our mother, how we grow grow up, right? so it, there is a lot of research in linguistics and language acquisition on this emotional connection and people identifying or not identifying uh, with the different culture behind the language and then feeling like they're not themselves when they speak another language, for example, or a very emotionally laden words that don't really have that uh, weight on us if they're spoken in another language so be it insults or being be it you know um even words that express uh cariño, <laughs> affect, affect, right, so um, there are researchers dedicated to study how you speak to little babies, for example, right, yeah. and so, um and usually our first instinct, even if we're multilingual, we would speak to our, to, to a baby, you know, in our native language, you know, because that's our most natural emotional connection, right, and um, so it just doesn't doesn't feel the same when you use another language for emotionally-laden words. Um, there is research saying that you might be a lot more likely to insult using insult words in your non-native language because they just don't feel like insults to you. Like, you don't <laughs> feel the knife. <laughs> you don't feel it hurting. Yeah. Um, and so this is one part to what you're saying, If people don't identify with that language, it doesn't, you know, there's no connection, um, then they're probably more likely to let it go and drop out. And from there would be my second point. How can we design more effective education, considering that that's the reality?
1: Yeah. So... (laughs) Babies is what's coming to me. I have a couple of things <laughs> saved on babies. I've talked about them a couple of times in podcasts because there was new research just recently on rhythm and babies. And so to, to give context, I've always taught pronunciation when I was teaching or then when I moved into coaching using rhythm, I get students to bump bump, 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 to bang on tables, to bang on their hands, to do things like that, to find rhythm before they find speech. And when they find rhythm, They say rhythm is the last stage of habit. I think it was um, Napoleon Hill who said that. And it's true of language as well. Anything that we make a habit, once we find the rhythm for it, a particular part of the brain finds the pattern. Once we have the pattern, then we find maybe the connection. And possibly that's what can connect us to emotion. But recent research, now they're saying what maybe you knew already, I don't know, from your studies, that babies learn more from musical sounds and rhythms than they do from individual sounds and from phonemes so you know this whole phonetic learning that we've had and what is it jolly phonics (laughs) that they've used for a long time in schools is not necessarily the right way i loved so much what you said there what came up for me at the end of it was about english then and so i'm irish right. And I'm very much a proponent of Hiberno English. It's influenced heavily by the Irish language. We don't speak the same English as anybody else in the world. They call it a dialect. I don't see it as a dialect. In my opinion, it's a language and it's an English in itself. And we've got this influence of what the world perceives to be the only two Englishes that exist. American English, which is brought upon by Irish and British English. Uh, so the American English and British English. And the world perceives these to be, in many respects, the only two Englishes, and that they sh- subjects should be taught in them. They are proliferated all over the world, and this is how people should sound or how people should speak. From an education perspective, the question that's coming to me is, what do you think needs to change there? to allow for a more
0: cool form of learning, maybe? Mm-hmm. I, language ideologies are such tough things to fight against. It's like those habits that you develop and, um, you know, think of any habit, <laughs> right? Um, and you have to break that habit. How long does it take you? How much mental strength and real effort does it take you to break those habits for yourself? Now imagine a habit that is spread out across the society and even the world. And that's the habit of seeing a standard language as the thing and the native speaker as the only real model. So how do we break that habit? How do we break that mental uh, trap? That a lot of people believe in, and this is how they teach and learn and expect the world to function. Right? Sometimes statistics help, right? And this is part of education showing: hey, the majority of people speaking English in the world today are non-native English speakers. So I've had to deal with a lot of English teachers, for example, that teach English, uh, be it in here in Mexico or in other places, and even they still believe that they're not good enough at teaching English if they're not native speakers. And so I have to give them this pep talk, right, and say, hey, look at the statistics, you know, give them real world examples. Right now, I work for a company um, outside of academia. um, And I work with people from all over the world, speaking English to each other. And sometimes it's, You know, it's it's good enough English if it lets us do our work, right, and contribute good to the society. That's it.
1: That's the purpose of language to communicate,
0: as opposed to
1: sound perfect. It's
0: exactly the
1: English-speaking world that has created this bias and judgment. And if you listen to my podcast episodes, particularly episode six, you will hear me speak out against even the term native speaker and non-native speaker it is my opinion that we need to stop using it really? and so I, I I don't I try not to use it as best I possibly can I use other forms yeah the sentences are longer when I use them speakers of, of English as another language but for me it's it's the native non-native idea that perpetuates the feelings of shame or not being good enough when as you say what is it 1.3 billion people speak English as a second third fourth fifth or sixth language as opposed to the 400 million who don't and so thinking of this yeah the breaking of habits I did some training at the beginning of the year with the Neuroleadership Institute we do some work on habits and forming of new habits so what they say from the research is that in fact we can't break new habits because they're always in the brain the wiring can be deconstructed to an extent and other wiring reconstructed over it almost like removing the old wi-fi cables and adding in fiber optics instead or rewiring the electricity in a house similar kind of concept so if we were to think about a couple of things you'd love to see happening in the world to start rewiring the mindset, what would that be?
0: So I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably more personal, uh, and it's humility. I'd love for myself and for everybody around me to just be a little more humble, to recognize that we just don't know a lot, you know, or the more we know, the more we should realize just everything that we don't yet know. To And that will be just so helpful even in our relationships, day-to-day life, family, <laughs> what have you, right? Just being a little more humble. And I think that overall will help us in our communication, in our learning, right? Um, overall um and so yeah i think um and and i know that this probably sounds a little utopic right so how do you go about it (laughs) um education perhaps (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but it's it's just a little tough especially seeing how we're being educated through so many channels right now without a lot of filters of knowing you know is this information reliable uh should i should i listen to this uh, i don't know should i trust this podcast or this tiktok or this um other channel right who who's right here and it's it becomes a little more difficult i think for cultures to really stop pause and evaluate cultures and individuals obviously to just stop Pause, evaluate. What am I hearing? Is it edifying me? Is it helping my relationships, right? Is it making me just think about myself um, above others? Or is it really bringing me to these centuries old truths um, that we know about? Um, And I'm going (laughs) to say this publicly I am a Christian and I believe in the truths and the values that the Bible. is setting for us. and many people who have stuck to those values through the centuries have found them as really edifying, you know. And so this is my personal uh, obviously take. Um, but it's just it's just interesting to see how those values are just drifting to the next big thing, a fad, a fashion, peer pressure, um, in various other things, right? Um, but oh well, um, so going back to developing this humility on the personal level, I think is gonna do all of us a lot good, a lot of good. Um, let me think about the second one, but this is <laughs> this is oh, the one I, I <laughs> heard three <laughs> I heard oh, really? humility, I heard education, okay. I heard uh, self reflection
1: okay So self-questioning that self-awareness whatever it is wherever your, your beliefs come from mine are different i'm quite paganistic in my beliefs i'm very different to yours but it doesn't mean i'm not value driven my values may be sourced from a different place i was raised in catholicism of course so i have so- certain aspects of that that have shaped my values but there are other areas that now and and before that influenced it so humility education self self self-awareness self-reflection for me that's key part of this concept that i'm working on neurocultural communication it's four pillars of awareness the brain language culture and the self and it starts with the self whatever it is the sources look inside what is that is it am i getting educated by it is it real is it true is it beneficial all those questions that you asked And there was another one that you said then at the end as well. Uh, Values. Check your values. I I spoke to a woman in Singapore a couple of months ago on the podcast, and she was talking about values work that she does with people. And a lot of people will say, yeah, I know my values. Of course I do. And they'll tell you their values. Okay. Tell me about a time when you express that value in your life and write it down. And then they sort of get stuck because Mm -hmm. they realize that they espouse different values. In their actions and their behaviors yeah I think there's a lot of a lot of wealth in what you just offered as ways to move forwards the question I was going to ask if you don't mind me asking because it came up in my head when you were giving those examples is do you think big business should get involved in rewiring these habits
0: I think it is. I think it is involved. Um, What I think is missing perhaps is a better link between business and education institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, At least from my perspective, from somebody who um, got my education professionalization in the United States, um, my sense is that, educational institutions could prepare students better for the actual work at those businesses, right? Um, So mine is a big tech, and that's everywhere today. Um, And it's not only for uh, programmers, and it's not only for STEM people, right? I am a linguist, I'm a humanities and social science person. And there are a lot of humanities and social science people um, working in business today in various positions. And I think we're really realizing that maybe we could have been prepared a little bit more to work in business. Um, but the nice thing is that even those who don't work in big business, big tech, um, we're still consumers of it. Right. So you know, in a way, businesses are educating their consumers through their products and through their communications. I'm in a comms team in tech, right? Right. So um, what better way to educate your customers than through communications? And the way we speak our English or the way, you know, uh, businesses are communicating uh, through marketing, uh, through technical documentation, i um, on the technical documentation side for example Uh, all of that is telling all of that is telling who's writing it you know um, who's involved in those teams a lot of my team members are non-native speakers of english once again using the term that we we both hate (laughs) but if that's how the world understands things then then sure we're very diverse
1: yeah yeah And i work with big tech as well and it's why i asked the question and i love your answer I would love to see big tech letting people know that their organizations are full of people who have a variety of different capacities to communicate in different languages, not just in English, and start to break the stigma of perfection that people believe they need to have to get into these careers. I mean, it's true. The clients that I work with, I work with them on their communication and on being able to produce English in a way that is more acceptable to the English speaker's ear. In, if I'm totally honest, because that's the way the world still is right now. But a bit more awareness on the side of those English speakers that hang on a second. What if we took out all of these people from our organisation? Where would we be then? Now maybe we need to think about that and, and adjust our ears a little bit to how they speak, as opposed to sending them a communication training all the time it's my thoughts anyway mm-hmm. we won't get too vocal on it like i say, i could talk to you for ages and there's so many there are so many different areas that i, I had noted to talk to you about I mean, advancing your security posture was another thing that i saw that you'd written it's really fabulous but to not go over too much time to be respectful of your time and the listener's time i think we can leave the wealth of your knowledge and experience and information there for today there is one final question that i do ask everybody who comes to the podcast but before i ask you that if people want to reach out to you or read your research or speak to you i will have links in the show notes but how can they do that
0: i think the uh, one place where you can find all of that is linkedin am um, quite um, active and participant on LinkedIn. Um, and so from my profile page, you will find links to the academia.edu site and other sites where my research is published. Obviously, you can feel free to reach out to me uh, through message. I think my email is also linked on there. So LinkedIn is where you can Thanks. find me, Valentina um Just find me just like that.
1: i Do that. I didn't even ask you about your cultural mix and I know you did mention it, but next time. Okay, (laughs) sounds good. Uh, The final question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast is about its title. It's called Connected Communication, as you know. What does connected communication mean to you?
0: Um, it's a bit redundant because I think communication in itself already presupposes a connection, right? But for it to be real good communication and effective communication, obviously there needs to be a two-way street communication and effect and effort into the relationship, right? And so, um, oftentimes we think of communication as language, but this is just so much more than that. It's the language as a tool to build and maintain that relationship. So I guess that would be my way to define that. Thank you so much.
1: I'm going to have to get over my little bit of hurt there. A bit redundant. <laughs>
0: I'm joking. I,
1: you edit it out. I know I'm joking. I'm joking because I love that you said that because you're making me think now about its, it's redundancy. But I think what you went on to say and I, normally I don't comment on what people have said because everybody has a different answer. But I I love that you said it because you're the first one who made me go, oh (laughs) okay, (laughs) let me think about that for a sec. But the detail then that you went into is the recognition that while there might be a bit of redundancy in it, it's not a given that people that communication between people is connected because so many people are disconnected when they communicate now. They look at phones, they look at other things, they're thinking about the response, they're thinking about where they want to go for dinner that evening. And they'd say, oh, sorry, could you repeat that? Because I wasn't listening the first time. So thanks. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and, and being here. It was, it's been a pleasure to meet you face to face, having just chatted with you a bit, a bit on LinkedIn. I do look forward to having you back and delving a bit more deeply into the work that you do and the research that you do. For listeners, as Valentina said, you can find her on LinkedIn. If you have questions, comments, please write a review, rate the show, share it with people, send it to people, send in questions you'd like me to ask the next time that we speak, if you have questions and until next time.